The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's good to see all of you back this afternoon for our study of God's Word. I want to just mention I appreciate what Brother Dalton had to say this morning uh, before he began singing uh, The Power of the Cross. He was standing down here and he said, I don't want you to see me, I want you to see Christ. And that's what that song is all about, just we need to see Christ. Well, when I stand here uh, talking about the tabernacle, this is truly my desire and that is for you to see Christ. And that's why we've gone into this long, long study for weeks and weeks and weeks, is because our chief interest every time we come into the pulpit is that Christ may be magnified. We don't always um, talk about Christ, uh, the subject of the message in, in, in speaking of certain characteristics of Christ and things that Christ did, but everything that we talk about in the Word of God does come back to Him and everything that's truth magnifies magnifies God. We are sanctified by the truth. And so it is a special, really a special privilege when we do have a series like this, where this is practically all that we do, is just talk about Christ and how he is shown in these tabernacle pictures. So we're happy to do that. I'd like you to take your Bibles and open to the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 26. And in our study of the tabernacle this afternoon, I'd like for us to examine the fourth and final covering that went on the tabernacle. And you remember there, were, uh, there are four coverings that are placed over the framework of golden boards. And these coverings cover the entire tabernacle structure so that neither the boards nor anything uh, on the inside can be seen. Now our text here is Exodus chapter 26 and There are 14 verses of description that explain the coverings, the length of the coverings. Uh, None of these, we learn by reading these scriptures, was a complete covering in itself, but was actually several pieces that were sewn together, hooked together, and that made the handling of them much lighter and more convenient as they traveled around the wilderness with this tabernacle. And so the text goes on to describe uh, each size of each section and how they were put together. And rather than reading all of those verses of explanation, we'll just look at the description of the covering for today's discussion, and then I'll fill you in with a brief review of the others. And the brief mention, just a very short mention, uh, of this fourth covering is in the 14th verse, where it says, And thou shalt make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red. That would have been the third covering. And a covering above, or going on top of that, a covering of badger skins. And then in Exodus thirty-six nineteen, it says, And he made a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of badger skins above that. Now, as we look at this one, I think we can safely make the assumption that this covering and the attachments for it uh, follow the pattern that was given in verses 7 through 13 of the goat's hair covering. And so there are these four coverings that are similar in size and stretch completely over the structure, as it says in verse number 13. Now, our picture that we have there uh, shows the coverings pulled back so you can see these in their distinctions. And the top covering, the last one that went on 
is a covering of badger skins. That's the only one that you can see from the outside. Now, before we go on to discuss that, I want to back up and mention the three previous coverings and the pictures of Christ that are seen in each of those. Now, we've described these coverings as a photo album of Jesus Christ, and that's what I was talking about a moment ago. Uh, We get to see Christ in all of these, and uh, he is, of course, the primary object of the symbolism of the tabernacle. And these are types of Christ. Um, Christ is the antitype, or he is the fulfillment of these. And the first of these coverings is described in verse number one, and it is a covering of fine twine linen. And this covering represents Christ's holiness and righteousness. It's the only covering that was seen from the inside and only could be seen from the inside. Uh, The last one's the one that's seen from the outside and the only one that can be seen. So you just have two coverings that can be seen. The one that's on the inside and the one that's on the outside. So the first covering then makes up the ceiling. It's visible only to priests who came in to do their daily service. It was mainly of white. It was embroidered with three colors of blue, purple, and scarlet. And sewn into the fabric were images of angelic creatures. These are the cherubim that stand for the holiness of God. And then the white linen that is emblematic of Christ's righteousness with three other colors that represent Christ's heavenly color, or character rather, his his royalty and his blood. Then above that, there is a second covering. This is a covering of goat's hair. And that is a picture of Christ as our sin bearer. Now, when we studied this one, we mentioned how that goats were very special to the sacrificial system. Especially on the Day of Atonement, there were two critical aspects of Christ's work in redemption that were shown through goats. And these are propitiation, which is the satisfaction to God made as a payment to his justice on behalf of guilty sinners. And then secondly is expiation, which depicts the guilt of sin that's taken away from the believer. And so the principal purpose of the goat was to represent the substitutionary sacrifice, that is Christ bearing our sins, taking upon him the sins and punishment that was uh, the punishment for the sins that was due us. And so he took that place of punishment and experienced the wrath of God for us. The result is the guilty sinner goes free. And that teaches there is nothing we can do that satisfies God. The only payment that God will accept for sin is the sacrifice of his own perfect son. Then thirdly, there is the covering of ram skins, and it also is a picture of substitution. And it differs somewhat from the goat's hair because, as we see, these are, in the scriptures, these are ram skins that are dyed red. And that is... Uh, to emphasize that the payment for sin is made by the offering of Christ's blood, and that represents his death. And it shows that Christ shed his blood for us so that we, we can say that we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Now, the ram skins re- remind us of substitution that was made in the Garden of Eden, and that's when God took animal skins and clothed Adam and Eve in their nakedness. But perhaps the most recognizable example of ram skins is the one we find in the sacrifice of Isaac when Abraham took Isaac up on Mount Moriah to offer him to the Lord. And after God had seen Abraham's faithful obedience to do what he was told to do, God stopped Abraham. So Isaac's sacrifice wasn't really a sacrifice because Isaac didn't die. Instead, God provided a ram that took his place on the altar. 
And substitution is a very important doctrine because it teaches how that Christ paid a literal price for the sinner. The price paid was accepted by God, which means that every soul for whom that sacrifice was made will, in fact, receive a pardon for their sins. And without this, there's no sense that the sacrifice could be literal or be the only thing that pleases God for our pardon. So if you add something to that, something that man does, whether it's faith or anything else, then you don't have a literal substitutionary sacrifice that avails what God said that it would do. Substitution also teaches that receiving a pardon for sin is not enough. Not simply enough to have a pardon. A payment must be made to satisfy God's justice. The law has been broken. The penalty must be paid. God gives mercy to pardoned sinners, but that doesn't mean there isn't a price paid. God never pardons without the price. The price was paid by Christ's suffering and his death. It also teaches that cleansing is not enough to get us to heaven. Cleansing would satisfy God only for our past sins, and so the only way that would work is if we never sinned again. God would wash our sins away and say, well, you better not do that again because you'll be lost if you do. And so the sacrifice of Christ provides more than just the cleansing of sin. It also provides a positive righteousness by which we are able to see God. So the only thing that actually allows us into heaven, allows us to merit heaven, is what Christ did for us. And his perfect life, giving us his righteousness, that enables us to merit heaven based upon what Christ did. So Christ's righteousness then becomes the substitute for ours. We have nothing but filthy rags. We have nothing to offer God. And so God gave us his own righteousness. Now that's beautifully illustrated in a new song that we've added to our music program. One of the favorites that, that we've added entitled His Robes for Mine. There are four powerful verses in that song that are excellent theology. And the first verse says, His robes for mine, O wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. Now learning that and understanding why God gave the tabernacle just opens us up to many, many doctrinal issues that most people never think about. And so as we sing songs like that and we study passages like this, we come into doctrines of God's word that are essential methods and provisions for the way that God provided salvation for our souls. So if we simply know only this, that we have been saved and we're saved by the blood of Christ and that's all that we know about it, then we haven't yet reached the heights or you might say the depths of what God wants us to know and what it took place for him to provide salvation for us. So this is the very reason that we spend time in these kinds of things, to understand the doctrines of God's word. Well, it brings us then to the last of the coverings, and the last one is a covering of badger skins. And this is a picture of Christ's humanity. Verse 14 again, Thou shalt make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red, and a covering above of badger skins. Now, of the three coverings that we've seen, this one is the least expected. The last covering that goes on, we would expect that it would be highly ornate, that it would be exquisitely fashioned and so beautiful as you looked at it that all other places of worship would pale in comparison. The last covering should be one that just dresses it up, that makes it exquisite in its beauty. 
And certainly if we tried to compare it or considered the gorgeous temples of heathen gods or even the magnificent cathedrals of Catholicism, this tabernacle from the outside should at least match those or far exceed those. But in fact, it doesn't. As, as you looked at this from the outside, we would say, well, that doesn't look much different than a homeless shelter. I don't know if any of you have seen this, but um, if you drive up into the back country, up in the coastal mountains northwest of Casadero, there is a, there's a Buddhist enclave. I don't know if that's actually what you call that, but it's a, it's a huge place that's almost a fantasy land of temples. It's called the Odeon Retreat Center on Tin Barn Road. And uh, you drive past that and you've got all these temples that are out there. They're just amazing. And the first time that I saw that, I was shocked that anything like that existed in Sonoma County. But then I also thought that it reminds me, I think, of the, uh, of the heathen temples in the Old Testament and how those must have looked. And here you have this little tent where Israel worshipped, and it must have been the butt of jokes of the Moabites and the Canaanites when they saw this place that they thought was the home of or the temple of Israel's God. And what they were used to doing was measuring their gods by things that they made with their hands. And that showed the foolishness of, of their hearts in thinking that the power of the, their gods was determined by their own craftsmanship. Jeremiah addressed this in Jeremiah chapter 10 when he described how the heathens would trek out into the forest and cut down a tree. And they would trim it up, they would carve it, they would decorate it with silver and with gold. And then they would fasten it with nails so that it didn't fall over. It had no power to move. And so if it needed to be moved, they had to pick it up and move it. And then after doing all of that, making it with their hands and nailing it down and trying to keep it from falling over, they bowed before it and worshipped it as if it had some kind of mystical power. And they were so foolish as not to recognize the power in it was only what they put there by what they made themselves. Now, another example of this is when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and they put it into the temple of Dagon, their god. And you remember the story of how they came back the next morning and they found their idol had fallen over. It had fallen over right in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so they set it back up. Next morning they come back and it's fallen over again. And this time all that's left of it is the stump because the head and the hands were cut off. Now you see, they measured their God's ability by what they made themselves. They made the idol, they made their temple, they set it all up. And then they looked at the Ark of the Covenant that they placed before it, and they say, well, here is just a small box the size of about, maybe about a coffee table. And they compared this to this massive image of Dagon that it's sitting in front of, and they thought because of that, their God must be more powerful. God never let Israel make an image of him. Paul told the Athenians, uh, who had hundreds of altars and images and magnificent temples on the Acropolis. He said, God does not dwell in temples that are made with hands. There is no place that can hold the immensity of our God. He fills all places with his presence, and God is everywhere in all of his fullness, all at one time. And so I can tell you that God was unconcerned about what heathens thought of his tabernacle. And so they, they thought this tent, the heathen thought this tent with its drab covering, oh, that must be an indication that Israel has no God that's worth serving. 
their little make-believe temple, they say, that's nothing, that's no match for our gods and the temples that we've made with our hands. And so you see in our picture, if we can put that up once again, the last covering that goes on is drab. It's nothing to look at. I mean, you might as well look at the tent that you put up for the pioneer camp out and call that your temple for what the heathens thought of this. But the pagan Canaanites couldn't understand Israel's God. He, he, he's not known except by divine revelation. No one understands God. No one understands his salvation until the Holy Spirit opens up the heart uh, to receive the truth of him. So the Greeks and the Gentiles, the Canaanites, the world's culture of the past and the world's culture of today call all of this foolishness. And I would remind you that you thought the same thing before God opened your heart with the gospel. You were just a pagan Canaanite, had no ability to know God or come to the true God of salvation. Well, God had something to show Israel about him and about how that he would bring redemption to his people. God must intervene. God must provide salvation in a very personal way. God must become man. And this structure was to show God dwelling with man. So there's this human element to it. There's human nature that belongs to the incarnate Christ and the shell of man's flesh veiled the glory of God. I find that to be one of the most amazing aspects of all the outstanding aspects of the tabernacle. There's gold and finely crafted articles of furniture in the tabernacle. There's a beautiful ceiling of needlework. There's an inner veil that's a stunning curtain of beauty. Perhaps you remember that video we showed at the beginning of the series where uh, the polished golden boards reflected the light of the golden lampstand and shimmering in that reflection as the light bounces around the inside of the tabernacle, there's revealed brilliant, unparalleled beauty. But the pagans on the outside could see nothing of that. They see the drab covering. The outside is dull. It's brown or perhaps a grayish color. That's unattractive and uninviting. And so they say there is nothing of interest here. The outside showed nothing that indicated the lavish treasure that was on the inside. Now the outside, it's exposed to all the elements of the weather, the rain, the heat, the dry winds of the desert. It's weather-beaten and unattractive. Unattractive. But that design was purposeful. God has a reason for this. God designed it that way because he had something marvelous that he wanted to display about his son who came to tabernacle to dwell with his people. So this is a picture of Christ's humanity, of God who stepped down from the glories of heaven to robe himself in unattractive human flesh after taking off the robes of divine glory. His robes for mine. What a wonderful exchange. Now let's see how this method of construction was symbolic of Christ. First, Jesus was devoid of outward beauty. 700 years before Christ came, the prophet Isaiah described the Messiah that God would send to this earth. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3 for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Now, again, very much unexpected that this is the way that God would choose to display his son. So he, he came into the world with no physical features that would attract people to him. He was a very common person, a very ordinary person. He had no standout features that would draw people irresistibly to him. He walked for 30 years on this earth, never doing any miracle of any kind as far as the Bible says. No, no record of that. And so they saw him about town every day, probably doing what he always did, uh, never suspecting that this is the one in, in three years' time would hang on a cross dying for the sins of the world. And they didn't expect in the miracles that would come from him. But as they looked at him, he, he's not Fabio, he's not Brad Pitt, and I don't know if those are sex symbols any longer, but uh, think of any Hollywood heartthrob that you can, and Jesus was not that. Nothing like that. Now, when I was working on this message, I was reading in 1 Samuel about the selection of Saul to be king, and then later David. Saul stood head and shoulders above the people. He was a handsome man. Looked like an obvious choice. Then likewise, David was described as a handsome sort, features that are pleasing. Ladies swooned when he walked by, but not Jesus. Nobody would think that he was much. They would say, well, he can't be a king. He just doesn't look the part. His family was poor. His job was common. Most uh, likely, Jesus was a stonemason. Now, we all, of course, hear that Jesus was a carpenter, but a carpenter in those days weren't like we think that goes out and frames a house. But a, a carpenter then was someone who worked with stones to build houses. And so Jesus was most likely uh, a stonemason. And if you have seen the hands of a stonemason, they're hard and they're rough. Years ago, I used to work around many block layers and brick layers. There was a man in our church that had been doing that for years, and his back was bent over from years of lifting these heavy concrete blocks and putting them into place. And if you looked at his hands, they were very rough, and they were split, they were cut. Uh, the acids in the cement and on those concrete blocks had chewed up all the skin on his hands. So imagine for just a moment Jesus like that. The pictures that people hang on the walls are a false Jesus. That Jesus has soft eyes, his skin is perfect, his hair is long, he looks like a flower child with his dovey eyes that are off stargazing at something. His clothes are dainty, the folds fall unwrinkled around him smoothly, and his features are not that of a Jew. I've even seen pictures of Jesus as a blue-eyed Caucasian. That's not Jesus. You couldn't put him on the cover of People, not on Esquire, not on GQ, because he doesn't fit there. Nobody desired him for his looks. And then nobody wanted him for his heritage. He was born into a poor family. No doubt they had to have, they needed those gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh to be able to afford the trip that they took down to Egypt when God sent them there, and then to afford the trip back when they went to the mean little city of Nazareth. You know, I like the way that that Spurgeon put that in his exposition of, of Jesus going to Nazareth when he called that Nazareth a mean little city. Uh, I mean, that was just a horrible place, poor reputation. That's where Jesus grew up. As you know, he was born in a cattle stall, laid in a manger. His birth clothes were not soft, dainty infant wear that you buy at Babies R Us, or you used to buy at Babies R Us. Uh, he was put into a, a burlap, wrapped a burlap, 
wrapping, a feed sack placed in a germ-infested feeding trough. And then as he lived, grew up, he grew up poorly. Uh, in his ministry, he had no place to call his home. He often slept out in the fields. His food was gathered off of trees at time. times. You remember how he looked for his breakfast from a fig tree. That's the Jesus of the Bible. He was badger skins, drab, unattractive, not much to desire. All of that's by God's design. God didn't want anyone to come to him and believe in him by looking at fine physical features. That kind of attractiveness would, would never speak to the heart and reach people at the level where they need to be reached. That's all superficial stuff. So God's not interested in the looks, and people weren't interested in him or his economy or anything else. If they were to come and to believe, it can only be because something else compelled them to come. And what is that? That's the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit draws people to Christ. God is in so much control of salvation, you'll never see anything valuable, worthy, or interesting about Jesus. God put nothing there on the outside to attract you. God must control your heart for you to receive him. And what other reason when you think of it is there are so many, so many in the world that resist him. I and mean, we can read the story. We know what he did. We see all the good deeds. We see the miracles. We see the perfect life. There's a sinless sacrifice. Why would people reject Christ when he did all of that? Well, it's simply because they won't come. They can't come. Because they're stuck on trees in forests that they can carve with their own hands and make into what they want. They want gods that are like them. They want gods that won't expose their wickedness. And they hate the one who tells them what they really need and what they really are. That takes divine revelation. So there isn't any outward beauty that brings anyone to Christ. And telling people Bible stories and telling them how wonderful that Jesus is, that won't do it either. He's the best human that ever walked on planet Earth. But how much difference does that make to anybody who is self-righteous? doesn't make any difference at all. People don't desire Christ because, in effect, this is the whole problem. There's no beauty. They can't see any beauty in that. It's, all they see in Christ is a reflection of their own horrible selves. I mean, from the outside. They see human flesh, and that's not much different than we are, is it? So that's the drab covering. That's what it's for. The outside is unattractive. So the pagan Canaanites are not standing out on hills looking down on the tabernacle as the children of Israel are encamped around it and just dumbfounded by the sheer magnificence of that place. Oh, they weren't attracted to it any more than a person today can see the beauty of Christ without something to open their eyes to see who he truly is. So Jesus was devoid of outward beauty. Nothing outward. But secondly and gloriously, Jesus was endued with inward beauty. Nothing on the outside told the story of what was on the inside. You couldn't see it. You can't tell it. Not until, at least with a curtain... Uh, the tabernacle, rather. You couldn't tell anything about the inside until that door is pushed aside and until the priest stepped in, is there anything that gives a hint at what's on the inside? Now, there is a great backstory to this. It's the scene on the Mount of Transfiguration. I want you to turn to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, uh, Jesus was a man. He was a man. He walked with his disciples. 
He taught them life-changing precepts. He told them about his kingship. He told them what life in his kingdom would be. And what he did here in Matthew 17 backed that up and was far beyond the disciples' expectations. Now, until this point, they didn't have this, this viewpoint in understanding Jesus. Not yet. And just to show you that they didn't, uh, you read the story here and you read about these stupid statements that Peter made. And uh, that makes the point. Uh, I'm not going to go into those tonight. We'll save that for another time. But here in Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. Now what I want you to see in this is that the glory of Christ was hidden by his flesh. He'd never showed this to them before. In fact, he didn't even let any of the disciples but the inner circle see this. That's Peter, James, and John. And so in effect, we can say what Jesus did was to peel back the badger skin to let them see what was on the inside. Now like the drab covering of the tabernacle pulled back, only then could they understand what was on the inside. Now hear the words of another of our new songs. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. You know, I get cold chills when I think of this. Peter, James, and John, might they have sung that very song when they saw Jesus unveil himself on the mount? He said that he was a king, he is the glory of heaven that is robed in frail humanity. He condescended to take on flesh to ransom us. So a step inside of the tabernacle is to see Christ unveiled. And there the marvelous display of his beauty is seen. It's what it's like for us to get on the inside of Christ. Now you get into the inside, what's there? Well, we've got weeks to talk about that, many weeks to talk about it. Uh, just briefly, you get inside and there's light from a golden lampstand. There's bread that's on a golden table. There's fragrance of sweet incense that comes from a golden altar. There's a curtain that you pass through to enter into the very presence of a brilliant light of God's glory. And that glory appears between two golden cherubim on top of a golden ark. And inside of the ark are tables of the law that are covered with the blood of atonement. So what are the sights and the smells on the inside? Well, there's light, there's food for the soul, there's intercession for sin, there's payment for all of our transgressions. In short, what you find on the inside is life. There is eternal life in Christ. How do you get it? You've got to be on the inside. Now, you take some time to explore passages that speak of being in Christ. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. In Colossians 2, it talks about the mysteries of Christ. 
Now you think about that, it's a mystery. Because even though here we have a photo album of Jesus in the Old Testament, their understanding of all of this is shrouded in mystery. And it's not until we get into the New Testament that the pictures come out in these vibrant colors. And what does Paul say about it? He says in Colossians 2, 3, "...in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge," speaking of Christ. Colossians 1, 19, "...for it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell." Colossians 2, 9, "...for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily." 1 John 2, 5, "...but whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected, hereby know that we are in him." 1 John 3, 24, "...and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us." Can you behold the wondrous mystery? What do you learn when you're in Christ? Well, faith in Christ brings you into the glorious truths of the work of Christ in the salvation of unworthy sinners whose understanding would always be darkened by the depravity of their hearts until that veil of misunderstanding is taken away that covers our eyes. Now, being on the inside and knowing Jesus is far beyond your imagination. And his beauty is the reason that people give up all other pursuits to have him. Now, another great example is a parable that Jesus told, uh, the parable of the pearl of great price. In Matthew 13, 45 and 46, again, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The pearl of great price that the merchant searched for and then found and then sold all that he had to obtain it is Christ himself. It's this pearl that caused Paul to say, I endure all things for the elect's sake that they will obtain their salvation. This is what caused Paul to go through all the harrowing events of his missionary journeys that he mentions in the scriptures. There are all those things that he went through. His whole purpose is to bring this pearl of great price and set it before the people so their eyes can behold him in salvation and know who he is. On the outside, people say, oh, that's just an old tent. It's draped in coarse leather. There's nothing here to see. There's nothing to be excited about. Just go on. Let's just pass by this. Israel's God is nothing. And just as Scripture describes, he is despised. He is rejected of men. He's a man of sorrows. He's filled with grief. What need is there to esteem him? What benefit is there to investigate any further? And so they don't. It's astounding. They have no idea. If they could just see the inside, how different it would be. Everything changes when you peek inside to see the beauty. Now, if I might, we will end our study of the outer covering with another observation. We discussed this some months ago in the forum class, and I'm not going to deal with it extensively now. But there is an argument about these skins. What are they? Because there isn't a badger that's indigenous to that area that was suitably large enough to make a covering of this size. It's just not suitable. There is no animal. And then further, you might remember that Brian Petro uh, pointed out, he asked a question in the forum class, is what got us into the discussion. He said, how, how did they use a badger skin when a badger is an unclean animal? Well, he found something that theologians struggle with. 
and I don't know the answers to it. One popular idea that you read in commentaries is that the badger skin refers to a sea cow. Um, like the manatees in Florida, these lived in the Red Sea. So they say, well, that's the, that's the height of a sea, sea cow. Then there's others who say, well, no, it's porpoise skins. And, that would, and there are some translations that actually use porpoise skins. And that would change the color somewhat from what we, what we see in our picture. I don't know for sure the answer to it, and neither does anyone else. But there is one thing that we know for sure, and that's where Moses got the skins. Not the animal, perhaps, but who did he get the skins from? Well, the leather for this covering is made from the shoes of the people. In Ezekiel 16, verse 10, there uh, it relates to the birth of the nation of Israel. And in the 16th verse, it says, or 10th verse, rather, it says, I clothe thee also with broidered work and shod thee with badger skin, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I shod thee, is what God says. That is, I put shoes on your feet that are made of badger skins. Now imagine the people are asked to bring their shoes to, to make this massive covering that goes over the tabernacle. And their response when Moses asks is, now wait just a minute. Tell the Lord this. We need our shoes. How are we going to walk on hot desert sands without our shoes? Now, no doubt, they had extra leather. They had this long journey to make. They have extra shoe leather in their possession. Everybody needs shoes. You've got to have shoes. And God says to them, well, you don't really need to worry about this. Just bring the leather and I'll take care of you. Well, did he? God thinks of everything. Remember, he had all this thing planned out, didn't he, from the very beginning? Remember all that stuff we talked about in uh, Exodus and the, uh, as Israel's leaving Egypt and they spoiled the Egyptians and all this and God was making preparations for it all? Well, listen to what God says in Deuteronomy 29, verse 5. And I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes are not waxen old upon you and thy shoe is not waxen old upon thy foot. They walked for 40 years and they never replaced a shoe. Year after year, mile after mile, burning sand after burning sand, they wore the same pair of shoes. Now, I was thinking about that. You know, I, I, when I was doing a lot of walking up the mountains around here, um, I, I would buy a pair of hokas. You may know what hokas are. Hoka one running shoes, walking shoes. And they're fairly expensive, but my feet hurt so bad, I had to have something that I could wear that was comfortable. But I would wear those shoes out after, I don't know, uh, just a few weeks. I was walking maybe 150 miles, 200 miles a month. And so I was wearing those shoes out, and the rocks and everything I stepped over just tore them all to pieces. Well, the people of Israel experienced the same thing. They're going to need lots of pairs of shoes. But God says, bring your, bring your leather. You're not going to need it. And so all the women that loved to have 40 pairs of shoes in the closet, they had to walk for 40 years in the same pair of shoes. You see, husbands, teach your wives right. Teach them to be like Israelite women. You buy them one pair of shoes, that's enough. That'll do. So um, they could bring all of this extra shoe leather because they don't need it. God provided for them. Well, there are many more lessons that we can learn from this story. When you bring God all that he requires, will he take care of you? You answer that question. Has God taken care of you? 
Again, that's another doctrine for another day. So this is it. When you have Christ, when you are in him, you have everything. He's not really drab badger skin, is he? Not at all. That's a picture of human flesh. That's what you and I are. Jesus became like us. He came in human flesh. But really, truthfully, Jesus is superlative. He's all in all. And his beauty truly exceeds the most beautiful temples and cathedrals the world has ever made. He is the glory of Almighty God. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have opened our eyes, our hearts to the beauty of Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, that in our flesh and our desires, we would never have come. We couldn't see the beauty. Uh, We thought that we were fine as we were until one day we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit used that to open our eyes to show us who we truly are. And as he did that, he showed us who Jesus Christ truly is and whom our hearts desire would satisfy everything that we need. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we are saved. Thank you for Jesus Christ who came to die for our sins and just the wonderful pictures of him that we see in the scriptures. Bless us, Lord, as we try to serve you to the best of our ability. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.